We're going to be reading this morning from the book of 1 Peter. So if you could take a moment to open your Bibles to 1 Peter, we think it very important here that we all, we all read it for ourselves. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got our Frontlines team back here. And if you can just raise your hand, they'll bring a Bible to you. If you have need of a Bible long-term beyond just this morning, you can feel free to take it with you. So once again, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, ransomed not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, it is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you, Sonia. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you come and let your will be done here this morning. Would you inhabit this place? Would you inhabit our hearts afresh here this morning? Would you guide my words this morning and would you soften our ears and hearts to hear and to understand. In your name I ask this, Jesus. Amen. Good morning, church. My name is Jeff Hesselink. I'm one of the elders here at Church of the City. And I'm going to be opening the word with us this morning. Uh, we're going through the book of Acts. We've been going through Acts for the past little while. And we're going to continue with that this morning. But... First, I want to share a little bit of a story about how I've been lately, which I hope and trust will be encouraging to those of you here who are believers this morning. 
Um, so yeah, I've known for uh, a couple months probably that I'm speaking this morning, and I knew the text I'm speaking on this morning, and so I peacefully and consistently started to study this and pray about it and sit with it, read the commentaries, do all the things you're supposed to do as you prepare to deliver a teaching. And the temptation is to like own it and make it my teaching. And uh, I feel I've, I was consistently resisting that temptation and was able to like seek and wait on the Lord. And I've taught a couple of times, not a ton, but a couple of times, and it always happens that at a certain point, you, you recognize what it is that this text is for, for you this morning. And when that happens, it's like the final click, and now I see it, and I can deliver it with confidence and peace. And, uh, and that just was not happening with this text for a lot longer than I'm used to. And it was really hard to just wait. And it was really hard not to try to force something and make it my own because that is not what we do up here this, on Sunday mornings. We believe that God's word really is uh, a living thing that is for, for all of humankind. But particularly here in this context, this morning, every church has been given like a word of God for the purpose of this body here. And so... So that's the heart that I approached this with. And yeah, so it was just not coming. And uh, last weekend came about, and it still hadn't come. And I had a weekend away planned. Eliza and I, at the beginning of the summer, had made our plan for how the summer's going to go. And last weekend, I got away. And I like to do that a couple times every year. I go away and be with the Lord, and I did last weekend. And uh, it was Saturday and Sunday, and the Saturday was, was just rest. I int- I'm not going to do anything with the sermon or anything else. I'm just going to, I went up to uh, Kawartha Highlands and paddled my canoe and just rested. And then Sunday morning, I was going to sit down and, and get to work again, seeking out God's will for this word. And so Sunday morning, I get up and I sit by the lake and I open my Bible just to do devotions, not particularly based on Acts. And then I decided to open this book on uh, a commentary I'm reading on the book of Romans. And so again, nothing to do with Acts, and that was intentional. I'm not going to stress. I'm just going to... And I'm reading this, this commentary on Romans. I'm about two pages in, and uh, he delivers this word picture. And, and there, there it was. And it was just very clearly, all of a sudden, it was just like, this is what ties this text together for us this morning. I don't know how to describe it in any other way except that. And uh, so the reason why I'm sharing this this morning because I want to encourage those of you who are in that kind of a place. You know that something needs to be coming about or happening, whatever it is, and you're kind of powerless, and you're just kind of waiting. I just want to encourage you, don't stress, just continue to wait. Walk with the Lord in love, not to accomplish anything or to receive anything, but just like just love him and be with him. When you open your Bible, and I encourage you to open your Bible a lot and just just seek him and be with him where he leads you and guides you. Because he knows what we need. It's his will. It's all about him, and he'll make sure it comes. He really will. So thank you. I want to open up with, yeah, this word uh, picture that I saw that I read in this commentary. So, so uh, visualize, please, uh, a mountain or a steep cliff, a rocky mountain. And on the side of this rocky mountain, it's, it's very rocky. There's not a lot, of gro- a lot of soil, but there's a little plant growing. And I, I, 
I hope you've seen that or you can visualize that. This little plant, and you can't really understand how it's growing because there's no dirt. It just seems to be clinging onto a rock. And it's not like thriving huge, but it's growing and it's not dying. It's continuing on. So with that picture in mind, let me read this for us. I'm going to read it through twice so that it lands well. We resemble the grass growing on the summit of some steep ravine where no other vegetation can live. Below, in the valleys, rise the mighty oaks whose roots are buried in the rich soil. We, however, are weak and tiny plants, hardly visible, unprotected from wind and storm, almost withered away, almost without roots. And yet, while the topmost branches of the oak trees lie still wrapped in darkness, the light catches us in the early morning, and we see what none other can see. We see the sun of the coming day, and we cry out our welcome. Come, Lord. Here again. We resemble the grass growing on the summit of some steep ravine where no other vegetation can live. Below, in the valleys, rise the mighty oaks whose roots are buried in the rich soil. We, however, are weak and tiny plants, hardly visible, unprotected from wind and storm, almost withered away, almost without roots. But yet, whilst the topmost branches of those oaks lie still wrapped in darkness, the light catches us in the early morning and we see what none other can see. We see the sun of the coming day, and we cry out our welcome. Come, Lord. Therefore, we are righteous before God, and in our weakness, we are strong. We are first because we are last. We grow because we wither away. We are great because we are little. I wonder if any of you can recognize that, can identify with that this morning. I'm going to open us up to, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open uh, Acts chapter 24. We're going to move through, through chapters 24, 25, and 26. So there's a lot of text. I'm going to lay it out, probably won't go super in-depth because time just doesn't allow, and then wrap it up with some application. So keep that picture of that plant on the, on the mountain and those, those mighty oaks in the valley in your mind as we look at this this morning. So to bring us up to speed, um, last week, Paul was seized in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, seized by this angry mob that was intent on lynching him. And the Roman rulers in Jerusalem kind of took him into protective custody to protect him from mob justice because the Roman system is you stand before your accusers and you make yourself, you make your defense, at least uh, in theory. That's how it should work. And so they protected him and brought him to Caesarea. And that's where we are this morning in Caesarea. And Paul stands before uh, Felix, then Festus, and then Agrippa, the third, or yeah, the second. So what we have in our text this morning is Paul standing before two great powers of his day, 
his accusers, the Jewish high priest and the chief priests and the elders of the people. These are the instruments of tradition and history in the Israelite people. They're even like a symbol of their peoplehood. Uh, back two millennia from Abraham, the, the Israelite people are represented by the faith of Jerusalem, which is the high priests and the elders. A giant, giant pillar in Rome or in, in Israel. On the other side stands Rome. Uh, they're known for conquest and organization. They're, of course, the ruling power in this part of the world. Almost five million miles around the Mediterranean was ruled by Rome. They are like unquestionably the power of the day. Represented by Governor Felix and Governor Festus and King Herod Agrippa II. So Paul standing before these two giant powers. Beginning in chapter 24, we see Paul before Felix and the Jewish high priests and the elders stand and accuse Paul of sedition and trying to lead the Israelite people astray, essentially, with this concept of the way. Uh, they essentially make a bunch of false accusations against Paul, and then Paul has an opportunity to speak in his defense. Paul proceeds to... Uh, completely disassemble what they accuse him of. And Paul instead illustrates how the way, which is Christianity, is not contrary to Judaism. We believe the same God that they believe, the book of Genesis through Malachi. We, we believe the same prophecies. It's all a continuation, in fact. It's not contrary, it's a continuation. We believe that the Messiah has come in Jesus. And we see that. And that is the reason why the Israelites want to kill me, is because they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Felix is interested, decides to do the Jews a favor and hold Paul without sentence for two years, which right away is, is, a, is a display of how the, the, Jewish, the Roman justice system is sort of on faulty ground. They're, they're doing favoritism for, uh, for the Jews, and Paul recognizes this. After two years, moving into chapter 25 of Acts, we see that Felix is going to be replaced with Festus. Uh, Felix was seen as, uh, the historians understand that Felix was like a slave with the power of a king. He didn't have the training or the upbringing to properly wield the power that he had, and so he was just completely abusing his power and eventually was dismissed from his power and replaced by Festus. As we move into chapter 25, we don't hear exactly what the Jews say against Paul in this case, but we do hear Paul's defense. And once again, Paul argues against the accusation that he's contrary to the Jewish way. And then in addition, we hear him really start to clarify that he is not working against Caesar. He's not interested in starting a, a rebel group against Caesar. Not at all. Um, At this point, again, Fest Paul hears Festus. Paul recognizes that Festus is uh, doing a favor for the Jews, trying to get them to move to Jerusalem. There's no reason why Paul should go to Jerusalem. He's standing before the Roman rulers in Caesarea, and he starts to recognize that there's no way this is actually going to work out well for him. 
And so he appeals to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, which Paul was, he has the right to appeal to Caesar. And so that's what he does, uh, which means he will go to Rome and actually plead his case before Caesar. And Festus now has to allow that to happen. He has to agree with it. And he does. So he holds him and prepares to send him off to Rome. At this time, uh, Herod Agrippa comes to essentially congratulate Festus for his, uh, for his new appointment. And while they're hanging out together, Festus says, I have this situation with this guy Paul. I don't really... I don't really know what to tell Caesar about him. Like, there's not really anything that is Roman rule that he's doing wrong. It's all, like, religious stuff that the Jews have against him. I don't know what to do because I'm supposed to write a letter and explain what's happening. I don't really know how. And uh, Herod Agrippa says, well, I'd like to hear this guy, Paul, if that's okay with you. And Festus says, for sure, you can hear him tomorrow. Herod Agrippa really understood the Jewish way. And I think he really understood the, the way as well, this Christian new thing that was happening. So he was really interested. The next day, uh, Herod Agrippa and Bernice, who's his sister, with great pomp and circumstance, enter the court of justice, you could say. And Paul comes in in chains. Uh, and Festus says, okay, so here you go. I think we're about halfway through chapter 25, moving into 26 at this point. Uh, Agrippa, meet Paul. And in the beginning of chapter 6, Herod Agrippa invites Paul to speak and to defend himself. In this defense against Agrippa, Paul really goes into his own personal encounter with Christ more than he did in chapters 24 and 25. This is the, this is the text where he really lays out his history, his childhood. As a young man, he was a Pharisee, like heavy duty in the Roman, in the, the Jewish way. In fact, a persecutor of the Christians. He was on his way to Damascus, as you might remember, or if you don't know, he was on his way to Damascus, which is this city outside of Israel, to try and find Christians and tie them up and bring them back for, for uh, court proceedings. And on the road to Damascus, he has this experience. You can read it in chapter 26, verse 14. Maybe I'll start there. And when we had all fallen to the ground on the road to Damascus, they had fallen to the ground. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Then Paul speaks to King Agrippa, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing de deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that 
by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I just want to interrupt the text here for a moment and point out that that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead. And if you know your Bible, you might wonder, well, but he wasn't the first to rise from the dead, was he? I thought in the Gospels there was Lazarus who rose from the dead and there was a girl who's, I think her father was a centurion who he rose from the dead and there was a boy who maybe had heat stroke. Uh... Why would it say that Jesus was the first to rise from the dead? The difference here, and what, what, what Paul is talking about, is that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, and death is no more. Uh, all those people, Lazarus and the, that girl and that boy, they, would, they were risen from the dead, but they still died one day. They still grew older and died, just like all of us, just like Felix and Festus and Agrippa. We're all going to die. Jesus, however, when he rose from the dead, he conquered death, and death had no power over him anymore. In Christ, death has no victory. The sting of death is gone. Jesus is the first to rise from the dead in this sense, finally and eternally victorious over death. Paul said that this act is the light proclaimed to both Jews and the Gentiles. Now this is the good news of the gospel, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's Romans 10, verse 9. Death has lost its hold on you. Death itself is dead in the sense that it used to rule over you. In verse 24 of chapter 26, uh, Festus can't take it anymore. He stands up and interrupts him and says, Paul, you're... You're insane. You've gone crazy. Your great learning has driven you mad. Paul retorts and goes after Agrippa, knowing that Herod Agrippa knows the Old Testament prophecies and has an understanding. He says, what does he say? Uh, King uh, Herod Agrippa, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa, kind of taken aback, like this, you know, he's in chains, he's some guy. I've heard of him, but he's not like a, an equal to me. He's probably taken aback that, Herod would, that Paul would speak so frankly and confrontationally to Agrippa. Agrippa kind of brushes him off and says, would you have me so quickly become a Christian? Sort of dismisses him, and they proceed to stand up and remove themselves from the room. And after they left, everybody agrees, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So that's the text that we have today that we've been working through. The question is, is there anything that we can take from it this morning? And I propose two things. The first point is that we can see that Paul and the early Christians lived their lives in front of people. They didn't, you know, buy 100 acres out in the country and live in a little commune and practice their faith there. They lived life in the public sphere. They professed their faith and spoke the gospel in the public sphere. 
very in front of other people. Uh, that's why he says to Agrippa, you can see this was not done in some corner. Uh, and that's a, that's a reminder to us that we are a part of this people who was inaugurated by Jesus to profess the gospel. Uh, and that's what we do. We live in the world, but not of it. But we live in the world speaking the truth of the gospel. Uh, remember that Jesus said, no one puts a lighted candle under a basket. We are to be a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. Jesus is victorious over death. Oh yeah, hold on, let me read this a little bit more. And this, this gospel message, this word of the Lord, stands forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, suffered and was crucified, dead, and was raised again from the dead three days later. He is victorious over death. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This everlasting life is a new life. It's like being born again, and it begins immediately, and it never ends. If you've never actually taken this invitation seriously or taken this challenge seriously, let me invite you to take it seriously here this morning that you would you would really wrestle with it and challenge it and submit to it. And after I'm done speaking, there will be some people up front when we usually sing, and I encourage you to come up and talk with them. The second point from this morning is this. Are you a believer and you struggle with wondering if Christianity is really worth it? The thing is, when we do walk in the world, and when we do walk among other people, uh, we can be tempted to compare. We can compare ourselves with what others have and with what others do and how they're doing and how, versus how we're doing. Do you ever feel like the others in your life seem to be doing so much better than you? You start to wonder, is Christ really worth it? Maybe. In the text this morning, on the one hand, we have Paul accused of being out of his mind for his profession of faith. False accusations leveled against him by the Jews. He's locked up for two years and used as a pawn with no real charges over him. And on the other hand, we have the elites, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, the Jewish authorities. These are the influencers, the rulers, the leaders. You could say they're the mighty oaks in the valley with their uppermost branches still wrapped in darkness. Paul, compared to them, looks weak and small, mistreated, scorned. But Paul gets it. He really gets it. He sees the light of the coming day, and he cries, Come, Lord. Or maybe when you think about it, you are a Felix or a Festus or an Agrippa in your world. You're at the top of your class. You've got it made. You're there. The world is in your hands. Things are going your way. But what if it's all really just a passing mist and you're really just one of those oaks? Have you become satisfied with life in the valley? The passing pleasures of sin, self-indulgence, self-glorification? Have you set your whole self on this life now? Sonia opened up our time this morning with that passage from 1 Peter 1, and part of it reads, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What happened to Felix and Festus and the high priest and the chief priests and all the elders? What happened to them? Well, they died and they're forgotten. As far as we can tell from the scripture, they said no to the word of the gospel that was presented by Paul. So they had their chance, they heard, and they passed. And what about Paul? Well, as we'll learn next week in chapter 28, he made it to Rome, just like Jesus said he would in chapter 23. And he was indeed used to accomplish much for God's kingdom, as the Spirit had indicated back in chapter 13 when he's commissioned by that church in Antioch. He is that plant growing on the summit who sees the sun of the coming day and cries out his welcome. Come, Lord. Paul can say, therefore, we are righteous before God, and in our weakness, we are strong. We are first because we are last. We grow because we wither away. We are great because we are little. So what about Felix and Festus? And what about Paul? And what about you? Let's pray. Lord, you are great and good. You are, trust, you are trustworthy and your promises are sure. There's no place we would rather be than on that barren ledge, exposed to the storms and the wind, with roots barely holding on at times. Because we see you. And we cry, come, Lord. Therefore, we are righteous before you. In our weakness, we are strong. We are first because we are last. We grow because we wither away. We are great because we are little. Thank you for this example, Jesus. Thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for making it possible for doing the work to make us right with the Father. Jesus, let your will be done. In Jesus' name.